Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm sorry that we had to postpone our update yesterday. The Council of Ministers met a couple of times yesterday, and we also had important parliamentary business, including our about our local elections. But it is good to be back today. Today is also the anniversary of the first case of COVID that we saw on the island. A year ago today, we reported that someone who travelled back to the island from Spain had tested positive. A sad reminder of how long this virus has been affecting our lives. Here with me today on the podium is the Minister for Health and Social Care. On Zoom we have the Minister for Education, Sport and Culture. And as also, always, we also have our Director of Public Health. And we also have our joined today by a special guest, Ross Bailey, who is the Head of Mental Health at the Department of Health and Social Care. Ross is joining us to talk to us about the challenges our community is facing regarding mental health and what resources are available. Before we hear from Ross, let's go through some of our regular updates. I would also like to update you on decisions taken in the Council of Ministers yesterday and this morning. But first of all, today's numbers from the Minister of Health and Social Care, David. Thank you, Chief Minister. The total number of tests undertaken stands at 42,346. The total number of tests concluded also stands at 42,346. That means that at the point the snapshot was taken, the lab has no results awaiting process. In total, in the last 24 hours, we have identified 21 new cases, bringing the total number of cases across the entire outbreak to 1,432. We have 862 active cases, and 20 of those active cases are in hospital. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, David. And it's good to see the numbers continuing to move in the right direction. And I'm particularly glad that the number of unlinked cases those that we cannot connect to previous cases, is coming down. But even though there are only four unlinked cases today, this is still too many. These unlinked, un unlinked cases are what causes the uncertainty in our situation. While these continue, it is tough for us to make bold decisions about changing the measures we have in place. More on that in a second. There are possible explanations about the tale we are seeing that are connected to the Kent variant and its behaviour. Our Director of Public Health will of course be able to explain far better than I can, so let me hand over to her on this and any other points with which she may wish to update us on. Dr Hewitt. Chief Minister, yes, so as has been said, the outbreak curve is doing what we want it to do, which is to say all the numbers are going down, albeit a little bit more slowly than we might ideally like to see. The numbers of unexplained and unexpected cases are also going down, as, as has been said, there were four today. Now, again, more than two weeks into the, the circuit breaker measures, we'd expect that to be down further than that, ideally. And so that raises the question, why are we still seeing these cases? And there are possibly two reasons for that. One may be linked to the behaviour of the Kent variant, which seems to give a longer infective period than the other variants that we were used to. And that's reflected by the fact that we're seeing significantly more positive cases who are still returning a positive swab test at day 13, whereas previously that would be at a very low proportion. We are seeing more of those. The other explanation, of course, is that people aren't adhering to the uh, guidance for the circuit breaker as rigorously as they should. 
So we, we do need to flag that that is something that people need to think about in terms of their own behaviour. Overall, though, things are evolving as we hope they would do. Um, the positivity rate, that's the proportion of tests um, that are positive out of all the tests that are taken every day, is going down consistently. And we're now down at just under 6% positivity rate. The other thing that's probably worth flagging is that although of all our positive cases, there is still that significant proportion that are children and young people. The interesting thing there is that new cases in that age group are going right down. So once the cases that we already know about have cleared and people have got through their 14 days, um, we hope we aren't going to see the higher proportions in that age group. So that's also good news. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, Dr Ewart. The point about behaviour is critical. The vast majority of people in our community are doing the right thing. You are making difficult decisions and making sacrifices by staying at home. You are doing this to protect our most vulnerable, to protect our health service and to protect our vaccination programme. And you are doing this to ensure that we can exit this lockdown as soon as possible. Every unlinked, unexplained case risks prolonging the lockdown. None of us want that, and that is why we all need to take responsibility. Mm. Do not think that the rules don't apply to you. Do not think that it is okay for you to pop over and see your friends. Do not think that you will never catch and pass on COVID. And please, just don't go into work if you have symptoms. The contact tracing team have again had to step in to a local business where an employee had been going in with symptoms and subsequently tested positive. I have mentioned this before and I have to say it again. If you have any COVID symptoms, stay at home and call 111. I know that at this time of the year there are plenty of coughs and colds about, but don't risk it. Call the clinicians at 111. I would like to update you on the conversations we had in the Council of Ministers yesterday. I've always said I will be as frank and honest with you as I can. I want to give you as much clarity and notice as I can. I need to tell you that as things stand, we cannot imagine being able to make significant changes to our measures before the 6th of April. When we came out of our restrictions in June last year and January this year, we had solid periods with no unexplained cases. 25 days in June and 21 in January. Although our vaccination programme is delivering at pace, we still need a decent safety period to know that the virus is under control. We judge that we are re realistically looking at a date of around the 6th of April before we can safely consider releasing some restrictions and probably the 12th of April before we could envisage a full release of restrictions. This is assuming, of course, that we continue to reduce and then eradicate the unexplained cases. We will know more over the coming days if we have more data and we will see the full effect of the lockdown. But I want to be as clear with you as I possibly can on the likely path ahead. This means that we are not going to be ready for hospitality, non-essential retail, lifestyle or other businesses to open until after the Easter weekend. The Council of Ministers also agreed that we would only look to reopen schools after the Easter holidays. The Minister of Education, Sport and Culture and his team continue to work on provision for our most critical workers, 
He is with us today and can answer any questions on this. We also know that we are not ready for construction and related trades to return to work next week. We had hoped that this might be possible, but the continued unknown cases mean we need to exercise the utmost caution. We may be able to bring back some outdoor activity for people, and we may be ready for outdoor construction to resume as a first stage, hopefully around the 6th of April, and I hope to be able to update you on this next week. I know that the Treasury Minister and his team are working to put in place extensions to our support schemes and he will be joining our briefing on Monday and will update us then. I know that isolation is hard and that the news that we need to continue our circuit break a little longer will be hard to hear. Not seeing our loved ones is tough. I know that myself. But a longer lockdown will be even harder on our society. The Council of Ministers this morning considered how we can support those who may feel most isolated during this extension of the circuit break. Currently, people who are vulnerable, those who genuinely cannot look after themselves, are able to have someone come in to support them. <coughs> the Council of Ministers today agreed that given the fact that this lockdown will continue for longer than we had originally hoped, we are ready to allow those who are living alone or lone parent families to access support, whether that is emotional or practical, from one another single household. This does not mean a free-for-all. This means a one-to-one -one relationship with another household. This is a good time to hand over to Ross Bailey for his thoughts. We asked Ross along today because we know that people are struggling and we want everyone to know that there is help and resources out there to support you. Ross. Thank you, Chief Minister. Taking genuine and proactive care of our emotional well-being has historically been so often played second fiddle to other priorities in life, whether this be raising a family, financial pressures, our physical health, or indeed living through a pandemic. The undeniable fact is, however, that our emotional well-being, the way we think, the way we feel, determines and drives our behaviour. Consequently, it has a fundamental impact on all of these so-called priorities. Given the current climate, one could argue that caring about our emotional well-being has never been more important. And I'd like to use this opportunity today to speak briefly about the choices we have collectively and individually to both acknowledge and take care of that most precious of assets, our emotional health. The starting point, as always, is our ability to recognise and acknowledge that we're struggling, regardless of whether you experience occasional low mood as a result of financial difficulties, or you're experiencing a serious life-threatening physical illness. The evidence base universally asserts the sooner you do something about it, the better. There is, however, no textbook or lessons that can dictate what normal emotions look like during a pandemic. Our responses and our degrees of resilience represent a really broad spectrum and are typically formed by our own experiences and opportunities in life. Whilst our variations in mood are entirely normal, and there's not one person listening to this who hasn't experienced anxiety or low mood in their life, and particularly in the last 12 months, What's important is our ability, our ability to both acknowledge the changes in our thoughts and feelings and recognise the impact this has on our behaviour. Equally as important is our ability to recognise and appreciate this in others. Typical signs and symptoms of low mood and anxiety often include irritability, restlessness, struggling with sleep, a feeling of emptiness, a loss of self-worth, and interest in activities we would normally find enjoyable. If these resonate with you personally, or you recognise their presence in others, it's so, so important they acknowledge and help and support the sort. This might include a discussion with someone close to you, 
your GP, or accessing information or support online, whether it's through our Quill or Cooth online counselling services, which are both available for children and young people 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or by other means. There really are some fabulous online resources available that really provide accessible advice and information and support. And these include, for instance, the MIND website and the UK NHS websites. We also have our own website online resource called the RUOK website. And I really would like to take this opportunity to highlight this. The, R the RUOK website was launched last year and it focuses on five ways to well-being, encouraging providing advice on how people can connect, be active, keep learning, give and take notice. Connecting is about building strong relationships and these are an essential part of building resilience and boosting well-being. The simple act of talking about something can stop it getting worse. Talk and listen, be there for people. This is so important within our families, within our communities and indeed in the workplace. Good employers, ones that see high rates of productivity and staff retention, listen, they're empathic and flexible in their approach. Be active. Being more active can improve your mood and decrease feelings of stress, depression and anxiety. There's a wealth of clinical evidence demonstrating the impact of physical activity on mental health. Indeed, many studies assert that regular physical exercise is equally, if not more effective, than medication in some instances. Keep learning. Be curious and seek out new experiences. Positively stimulate brain and boost well-being. Give. Sounds simple. Give. But carrying out acts of kindness whether small or large, will increase happiness, life satisfaction, and a general sense of well-being. This includes, critically includes, being important to yourself, to yourself and not being overly self-critical. Again, the impact of kindness and giving makes you feel good, and it's, again, it's clinically well-supported. Finally, take your notice, pay more attention to the present moments, to thoughts and feelings, and to the people around us. It can boost your well-being. This is often called mindfulness. Take notice of your feelings. Start meaningful conversations and listen. Each of these five ways to well-being pages of links on, on the website have links to numerous local charities and third sector organisations who provide remarkable, yet often under-acknowledged services to our community. In addition, the RUK website also includes a really broad selection of articles, not only written by local health and social care professionals, but experts by experience. These are people who have experienced these problems and want to share how they manage them. These range from dealing with debt to mental resilience, domestic violence, sexual assault and healthy eating, a huge range of information. Are you okay? It seems such an innocuous, yet often underutilised phrase, yet it has the potential to act as a catalyst for a chain of events that can literally be life-changing. Are you okay? For those of a certain generation, and as a 50-year-old man, I include myself in this, you may recall an advertising campaign for British Telecom in the mid-1990s, hosted by the late, great Bob Hoskins, in which he set about promoting their service by bringing people together, applying the catchphrase, it's good to talk. He was so right. Although perhaps he should have been included, it's good to listen. It's good to talk. It's good to listen. Never has this been more true than it is now. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, Ross. It is so important for people to know that you don't need to get through this alone. There are people and resources out there to help you through this challenging time. And I hope people can see that there is a path forward. Yesterday, Timwald endorsed our longer term approach towards really getting back to normal. I'm not talking about this lockdown, but far beyond that. 
This is the exit plan that we have discussed here before. As I said yesterday in Timwald, this is very much a living document. We will revise it as we have a clearer view ahead and I hope this gives you an idea of where we are heading and what the milestones might be and what data is important to our decision making. Some of this relates to the situation in the United Kingdom and to an extent beyond that. The, the news in the UK is positive. Cases, hospitalisation and infection rates are decreasing daily and their vaccination programme is moving ahead well. Our own hospital is under incredible pressure at the moment. We know that peaks in hospitalisations will often follow around 10 days after peaks in cases and this is where we are. I will ask the Minister for Health and Social Care to update us on this and other matters. Just before I do, I would like again to congratulate everyone involved in our vaccination programme. Not just those jabbing arms, but also those booking appointments, generating the mailing lists, transporting members of the public and everything in between. It is a team effort across government and our community. More than 25,000 people on our island have now received at least one dose and they have put nearly 14,000 doses into people's arms since just the 8th of March. Let's go to the Minister for his updates. David. Thank you, Chief Minister, and quite a few updates today. Um, I want to start off on vaccines, and I know there have been questions asked around recent international media stories and the AstraZeneca vaccine. In terms of AstraZeneca and blood clots, there is no established link with blood clots and the vaccine. The European Medical Agency has been looking at the 33 cases that have emerged out of the 5 million European vaccinations delivered. Their inquiries have resulted in no establishment of a link and as a percentage of those vaccinated, as a percentage those vaccinated actually developed less blood clots than you would expect in a normal non-vaccinated population. As a result, the EMA has declared the AstraZeneca vaccine, in their own words, safe and effective and continues to recommend use of the vaccine and also continues to certify it as safe. Those European countries that paused its use, such as Italy, Spain, Germany and France, have resumed using the vaccine. The World Health Organisation has also looked at this and found no link and continues to recommend the vaccine's use and certified it as safe for use. The UK regulatory authority, the MHRA, has also been investigating and yesterday announced that they can, after a review of cases, find no causal link and have endorsed the use of AstraZeneca. The independent group of the Commission on Human Medicines has also been investigating and has announced that their review has also found no evidence that AstraZeneca caused the blood clots in any of the cases they have investigated and they have reaffirmed their endorsement that the vaccine was safe for use and should be used. Just as importantly, the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostatus has also strongly recommended that people continue to receive the vaccine, including those they represent who suffer from blood clots. The Society has been clear in their message that there is no established link and that the well-conducted clinical trials showed no issues in this area. When you are vaccinating a population, it will always be the case that people who have been vaccinated will, will naturally still get ill with conditions, particularly when you start with the older population. And while cases need to be examined, it shouldn't be assumed there is an immediate link to the vaccine. 
It's similar to the recent deaths, which people may remember, that were splashed around the international media of people who had been vaccinated in Germany and Norway, which on examination turned out to be nothing to do with the vaccine. But unfortunately, that bit never got widely reported. The UK and Europe has delivered millions of AstraZeneca vaccines and there have been next to no flagged reports in relation to blood clots, which again is lower than you would expect in an unvaccinated population. So there is no current scientific basis to say that AstraZeneca induces blood clots. It's also worth pointing out that 65 countries use the AstraZeneca jab and only certain countries took the approach of suspending the use of the jab and most of those have now reversed position. Also, many people will have seen the announcement in the UK around vaccination supplies and a slowdown in supplies in forthcoming weeks. Recently, we increased the delivery timescale second dose of the vaccine in line with the trial data to 10 weeks. One of the reasons for this date being decided upon was to give us flexibility in this area should supplies slow so that we had further room for manoeuvre if necessary. In light of the announcement, we have decided to use that flexibility and will be moving to delivering second doses at 12 weeks to ensure we can, subject to no further supply disruption, maintain a stable continuing vaccination programme. Sticking with vaccines, Next week, we're holding a vaccination clinic specifically for adults who have learning disabilities. To be really clear, this is adults who live in our community and who generally use our day or respite services or those of our partner organisations. We're doing this ahead of the UK delivery schedule for vaccinating this group of people. It's really positive news and it's important that we prioritise the needs of our residents. However, we do know that there are some adults who live in our community who don't use our learning disability services at all, but who are eligible to have a vaccination next week. We've worked with our GPs and learning disability teams and written to everyone we know would be eligible. But I want to make a final appeal to parents or carers of adults with learning disabilities to ask them to contact us and book their loved ones in for an appointment if they haven't done so already. Appointments aren't being made by 111 for this specific clinic. Instead, they're being made directly with the Learning Disability Service as they're able to give the best advice on this situation. Their numbers should be on screen now. But you can call them on 698 326 or 685 102 between 9am and 3pm Monday to Friday. Please do not ring 111 to try and make an appointment for your loved one for this clinic. There are some spaces still left next week and we don't want anyone to miss out on this opportunity. The clinic will be held on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. The vaccinations are being given in a very quiet and calm environment at the Greenfield Park Resource Centre on the Noble site, which will be familiar to many of the people attending. Only two people will be in the centre being vaccinated at any one time and the appointment sessions are longer in order to make sure people don't feel rushed and help them have a positive experience. For many adults with learning disabilities, receiving any injection or vaccination can be very worrying for them. One final point on vaccines. If you have registered online, you do not need to follow this up by calling 111. 111 will call you back or get in touch by other means when they have been able to book you in with your appointment details. 
there is no need to register online and then call. I'd also like to make people aware of something really important with our healthcare settings. If you're attending an appointment at Nobles, Ramsey Cottage Hospital or any other healthcare setting on the island, you'll be given a clinical fluid-resistant face mask to put on when you arrive, even if you arrive already wearing your own mask or other face covering. This is for the protection of our healthcare colleagues, as well as other patients and service users. Maintaining everyone's safety is our main priority right now. It's really important that people respect the roles that our healthcare colleagues play in protecting you, their patients and members of the public. And safe and effective PPE use is a vital part of that. Can I take the opportunity to once again thank all of our hardworking health and social care colleagues across the island for the hard work they are doing at this difficult time. That includes our primary care providers who are continuing to offer services to our community, including our GPs, pharmacists and dental practitioners. Our systems are under strain and pressure at the moment and I would ask everyone to help our medical practitioners to help them by avoiding any risky activities that may place further strain on our services at this current time. I also know that all of us want to return to normal as quickly as possible and just how frustrating for some this current circuit breaker can be. By coming together as a community and working as one, we can come through this again, just like we did last year. That means breaking chains of transmission and preventing spread by wearing masks when out in public, unless for medical reasons it's not appropriate, hand hygiene and keeping enclosed spaces wherever possible ventilated, and at this current time, also staying home where possible. By doing these basics, we will increase the chances of us coming through this more quickly and getting back that sense of normality that we also very much crave. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, David. Just before we go to questions from the media, I should say that the JCVI risk group I fall into is now being invited for vaccination. And I had my first dose today. I received the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which as David has referred to, has undergone a further thorough and careful review by the UK and EU regulators in the past few days, with the conclusion that people can have confidence in the vaccine. As someone who is, shall we say, needle shy, I can happily report that I genuinely did not feel a thing as the vaccination was given to me. I would personally like to thank the whole team and would reassure anyone who may have any concerns to go ahead and get it done. And now let's go to questions from the media. First of all, we have Aaron Ibanez from Jeff. Aaron. Uh, Health Minister, uh, COVID admissions at Nobles Hospital hit a peak this week. While police staffing levels remain stretched, why hasn't there been an emphasis on protecting emergency services during this lockdown as we saw last year? So, for example, the reintroduction of a 40 miles per hour speed limit. Um, I, if Chief Minister, happy for yeah. me to take that. Um, in terms of a 40 mile an hour speed limit, Aaron, that was of its time in the last um, lockdown. We didn't know the direction of travel. Health services are strained, but they are coping. Um, 
but if you know that that is something that may you know we could always be considered but at this current time we don't believe that we do need to go down that route that would be a last resort we are protecting um frontline workers in terms of the police and healthcare workers we very much appreciate the hard work that they are doing and they are doing it under tremendous pressure the pressures that are coming in the hospital is not to do with um, anything coming off the road traffic collisions or anything else the pressures are coming from COVID because when we have large numbers of COVID people in the hospital that means we have to create isolation units those wards require more staffing because it's very much in some cases one-to-one -one care so that is where the pressure is and bringing in a 40 mile an hour speed limit is not going to reduce that pressure because it's COVID pressures that are causing the issue. Sure. And just on, I guess, that theme of, of stretched um, track and trace, for example, has been stretched during this lockdown. The same with the 111 service, almost overwhelmed at points. Is there any regret from public health in refusing offers um, from the island's own private sector to develop a contact tracing app, for example? Well, I'll let the Director of Public Health come in in a moment, but I've spoken about apps before, and there is limitations with apps. We have a very good, very effective um, contact tracing physical team that actually go through, speak with the people concerned, track down the transmission chains. It's very much a forensic approach. An app really only works if you have roughly around about 40% of the population taking it up. Um, if that doesn't happen, and there's very few apps around the world that have managed and achieved that, then it effectively isn't effective because the app can only communicate and identify people who have got the app themselves. What's much more effective is what we have done, I believe, which is the personal touch, and that's contact tracing, speaking to the person, finding out where they've been, who they've been in contact with and breaking it down in a proper forensic way. That's something that an app can't do. Apps are great for large jurisdictions, where when particularly you've got a large number of cases spread across those large jurisdictions, it's not physically possible to do it in the way we're doing it. But in small jurisdictions, we can do things a lot more nuanced, and that's exactly what we've done. And I'll bring the Director of Public Health in, in case she's got anything she wants to add to that. Thank you, Minister. Actually, you've covered it very clearly, so I've got nothing to add to that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. Now we move on to Paul Moulton from Isle of Man Television. Good afternoon, Paul. Faster mine. Thank you. Um, I think you probably guessed where I'm going to go with my question, the first one, what you said in Timwell the other day about the complaints you've had from the public about these press conferences, about the number of questions and the repetitive series of them and you I, what i really want to understand is how many people write to you to make you say that are they all of one opinion or are you getting a mixed flavor and is this really something that you just don't like doing no i want to do this paul but it's important that when you get lots and i'm talking about hundreds of people and, and feedback over the period that we've been doing the same style for roughly a year and if there's a way of improving it making it more interesting to the public then we have to listen to that so I've asked the team for example we know that a third of people switch off the minute we go to the questions now that's disappointing to find that out we need to know what can we do to reinvigorate these briefings to ensure that more people and people stay on listening because some of the questions are outstanding and can give really good information to the public but if you're losing a third of your audience then we need to say well what can we do and therefore any feedback from yourselves on how we can um, improve the um, feedback to the public because at the end of the day we need to get our message out we can't have people saying we're switching off 
at the end of this and that's why we've brought in a mental health expert today it's why we've got James doing a, a briefing tomorrow with frequently asked questions on the vaccination program it's really important we've also upped the advertising with all of you on um, getting the message over to the public so we need to look at ways of improving it yes I've had not just a few I've had lots of complaints and we need to act to try and improve the situation you, you understand that at, at, at number 10 Downing Street presentation, after Boris or whatever has said his piece, the same thing happens. It happens everywhere. Some people don't want to hear the questions. In fact, actually, weirdly, most people tell you they don't want to stay for the questions and then can actually tell you every question that's been asked. You understand that this is something that has to be seen that you're not sort of manipulating how these things are going to be done. Yeah, Paul, I've never manipulated. You all ask your questions. I never have a clue what you're going to say to me. And we always give you the best answer that we possibly can in, in the time that we're allocated to be able to, you know, you know, respond. But equally, if we're getting swamped with complaints, we need to say, can we do it better? And that's all we're looking to do. We will be still taking questions from the media. It's can we do it slightly differently? And we'll, we'll look to see how we can do that. Okay, and, and just to qualify this, hundreds of hundreds saying they don't like it and any saying they like it? Or, you know, what's the balance level on this? The first person that has said, please don't stop the questions, is I received yesterday. Otherwise, it's all one-way traffic making complaints. So You understand... I this could be like the emperor's new clothes, though, isn't it? You only get people writing to you to tell you that. Other people, on to us. I mean, all of us are getting the other, the opposite view. That's what I'm saying. It, well, well it, I, I, I get that, Paul, but... And if it was just the hundreds of messages I get, I might have ignored it. But when I asked our media team, do people switch off? And we've, got, we've all got the technology. You can check for yourself. Do people switch off when it gets to the questions? And I'm told a third do. That is worrying. And that's something that we need to improve okay. so that we can continue to get our messages over. So I'm not ducking questions from the media. More than happy for it to happen. But equally... Just because we've done the same thing for a year doesn't mean to say it can't be reinvigorated to improve that um, audience participation. OK, actually, just to finish with, that means two-thirds are still watching or listening, which is actually fantastic if you think about it. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, for the doctor, what's the process for someone who tests positive on day 13? You've been mentioning this. How do they get released? Of the link cases, do we know the breakdown of how many isolating and how many were not? And do we adjust our contact tracing and risk level assessment accordingly? Well, I think there's several doctors on Zoom at the moment, Paul, but I, um, but I take it you mean the Director of Public Health, so we'll bring Henrietta in on that. Yes, um, multiple questions there. I'm not quite sure I follow all the threads. First of all, if somebody tests positive at day 13, they go on for a further seven days of self-isolation and then they're released without a further test at day 21. And the reason for that is partly re related to the Kent variant because there is emerging evidence there that the period of infectivity goes on longer with Kent than it did with some of the other variants. So therefore, erring heavily on the side of caution because we are still aiming to get back to local elimination, we take them as being still infective at day 13 if they have a positive test. And in fact, where we have the CT levels available for those, those also support that a lot of those cases would still be infectious. Um, so that's why they go on for another seven days. 
beyond day 21, the evidence is that any further positive PCR is likely to be persistent shedding, which is not likely to be infectious. Now, it's always possible that a tiny percentage would still be infectious. So by letting them go kind of automatically at day 21 without a further test, we're really balancing the need to protect the population from inadvertent release of somebody who might still be infectious against the burden of prolonged isolation on individuals. Okay, now you'll have to recap the other questions because I've lost the thread of them. Of the linked cases, do we break down how many were isolating and how many were not? And do we adjust our contact tracing and risk assessment accordingly? The linked cases now are all people who were identified as high-risk contacts and therefore were self-isolating. So therefore, there is nothing to adjust in terms of the contact tracing there other than to extend their period of self-isolation. Okay. Thanks very much, Paul. Now we move on to Helen McKenna from Isle of Man Newspapers. Good afternoon, Helen. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. My first question is for the Health Minister, please. We've had a report from a reader in her 80s who has has had both her jabs and she's still testing positive, but she's showing no symptoms. Is there now evidence that people are being infected by asymptomatic people who have had jabs? And if so, would this pose questions around the reliance of the island's exit strategy plan upon vaccination rollout? No, there's no evidence of that actually happening at the moment, or none certainly I'm aware of. I'll bring the Director of Public Health in in a moment in case she's got anything that I don't know about. We've said all along that someone who's vaccinated um, can still catch COVID-19. What the vaccine does is it, it, it tries to prevent someone becoming seriously ill or having, in fact, a fatal outcome from contracting COVID. But we've been quite clear all along that people will still potentially contract COVID. And so anyone who is identified as COVID positive who's had a vaccine must isolate in exactly the same way, because although it lowers the risk of transmission, it doesn't remove it entirely. Um, as we vaccinate people, there will be people who are vaccinated who will catch COVID who may be asymptomatic. Um, but that is one of the reasons why, as our strategy, we are trying to suppress the virus. And we're still on, at the moment, an elimination strategy to get it out of the community. Um, so we are trying to reduce any risk of there being that transmission within the community in the first place that would cause a situation like that. But I'll hand over to the Director of Public Health. Thank you, Minister. Um, yes, it's always difficult to work from an individual case, but I mean, there are a number of points there. Uh, it's not clear to me why somebody who's been vaccinated, if they were asymptomatic, why were they tested? But again, it's probably going into too much detail for an individual case. So if we look at some of the um, principles, most of which actually the Minister has touched upon, um, there are also additional factors such as, for example, at the time somebody goes for their jab, they are asked to declare whether they've got any current symptoms that might be COVID. But even allowing for that, it is possible that somebody was asymptomatic but already infected when they had the jab and then goes on to show the symptoms and be tested positive in the days or week after they had the injection, the first, the first vaccination. The other point, of course, is that immunity doesn't start to develop until two to three weeks after the time when you had the vaccination. So it's perfectly possible to be infected by COVID in that period of time. 
So there's all sorts of factors that can operate around that. And finally, of course, no vaccine is 100% effective. So there will always be a small proportion of people who, even though they have had both vaccinations, still don't get the full protection and can go on to become infected and infectious. So all of those things are, are well known, but that shouldn't impact on the fact that overall, when we get the vaccination programme fully rolled out, it should enable us, bearing in mind other factors such as the emergence of new variants and changes in prevalence of infection in surrounding jurisdictions, but overall the vaccine programme should enable us to reach a point where it is much easier to control levels in our population. Thank you. Thank you. My second question is actually for Mr Bailey, if that's okay. Um, and it might also tie in with uh, Dr Allenson as well. Um, so that information, Mr Bailey, that you said before about mental health was really, really helpful. And I'm sure a lot of people across the island will be really appreciative of that, myself included. Um, so I just wanted to know what's being done to help children during this lockdown and also beyond lockdown. Obviously, every age group is affected by this pandemic, but I'm sure you're aware that, you know, it's going to be really difficult for children, especially if they can't see their friends at school and just that they obviously are very impressionable, you know, particularly younger children. So can you just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's, you know, there's a, there's a, I've got, I'm a father myself with three children under 10. So I'm, I'm under no illusions of the challenges and how difficult it is for, 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 for children and particularly families. It's enormously difficult um, and I think you know what we what we need to be doing and I think we, this has really started and it's really encouraging is us working not just the mental health service but collaboratively with with our colleagues in in, in education with women's and children's services um, with the third sector really to, to, to build on our package of provision and that's a project that's underway um, at the moment now clearly that's that that's realizing that's going to be going to be in the, in the, in the future um, I think it'd be helpful to to to, for, to 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 get some information from um, my colleague in education. But I think, you know, we we absolutely need to work collectively to to to, to address this problem. I'm really looking in terms of the long term and what um, what we've learned. We've learned a huge amount over the last twelve months in terms of in terms of care for children and um, and and how important you know that it is for them to socialise and be around be around their friends. Um, so. Yeah, that, from my perspective, it's about it's about the, the, the long haul and how we can build the provision in the future, working collaboratively with a range of agencies, government departments and the third sector. Thanks very much, Ross. And I think Alex wants to come in on this too. Alex? We better unmute you, Alex. The, those children who we already know um, are, are, are vulnerable. So um, teachers and also some of the, the support workers have been contacting them when they're when they're at home on the department of education sport and culture website there's a whole range of various signposts for well-being and mental health issues as well for those people who are, who are at home to give them the support point them in the right direction one of the things we've had working in our secondary schools right the way through um normal activities was a very good listening service using both youth services and our listen and a couple of other charities 
And what we'll be looking at doing when we reopen schools after the Easter holidays is ramping that up and making that much more accessible, making sure that young people who have been struggling during this very dark time for, for our island have the ability to talk to somebody and to be listened to, as Ross said. It, it, it's that ability to be listened and actually for your um, problems and your experiences to be shared that can be very therapeutic. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thanks very much, Alex, and thank you very much, Helen, for your question. OK, next we have Leanne Cook from 3FM. Good afternoon, Leanne. Fast am I. Uh, good afternoon, Chief Minister. My first question is just in regards to the new guidance that's been given for single households. We've just had a few queries since that statement. They're just looking for black and white clarification as to how exactly that works, and in particular, when that's coming into force. Well, it's coming into force now, and it's let's be clear, it's not a free-for-all. So if you're a family of five, you can't go and mix with a family of five. But if you're a person living on your own and you're feeling isolated and you, you fear for your mental health, or maybe you're a single parent looking after kids who, who maybe need that little bit of extra moral support, or if one of them's not well, then that's what we're allowing. We're allowing you to team up with another household, and that's just one household. You can't chop and change every day of the week with different um, households. You choose one household that you're content, that you think will be able to give you that support that you need, and then you stick with them, and you can go and visit them, or they can go and visit you. But as I say, it's not for multiple households, and it's also there to help if you're a key worker and you, you're struggling to get childcare and you haven't got any family members or you can choose a household where as long as there's no other people mixing that your children can maybe go and stay there while, whilst you're working. So it's realising that we're not going to be out of this as quickly as we, we had hoped to. We've looked at the data of, of Jersey and Guernsey, our fellow colleagues in the Channel Islands who sadly have been through what we're going through now realising that we need to do our best for the mental health and well-being of people living on their own that need that little bit of extra support that weren't already covered because we were already supporting people who were vulnerable already. This is just people who are living on their own, feeling isolated, concerned about their mental health. We're, we're trying to be as helpful as possible. Thank you. And my second question is either for the Health Minister or the Director of Public Health. Um, do you have a figure of how many people are currently in self-isolation? And have you considered adding this figure to the online COVID dashboard so people can see that for themselves? Um, in terms of self-isolation, um, I did have the figure but unfortunately my iPad has locked on me um, but what um, but while I'm finding it Leanne just to say um, we have looked at that and in fact we will actually be putting it on the um, press release that goes out at four o'clock so each day so people can actually see in total in self-isolation at the moment I have the figure as 2,709 unless the director of public health has a different figure uh, no, Minister, I don't. Okay. Okay, thank you. Hopefully that answers your question, Leanne. Now we move on to Tim Glover from Manx Radio. Good afternoon, Tim. Fast am I. Fast am I. Just to save me emailing the Health Minister for a fourth day in a row, we've got the self-isolation figures. Can I just have the ICU figures yeah, before I ask it's, the question? It's exactly the same as yesterday, Tim. The last update four. I had, had us a four. Thank you. Uh, 193 of the 862 active cases are from unknown source. We've talked about this smouldering uh, Heathland before the Director of Public Health has. How, how concerned are we that there may be many more asymptomatic people out there 
who unknowingly are seeding more cases. And with that in mind, uh, are we likely to come out of this lockdown in a more phased affair like the first lockdown rather than just, right, carry on? Well, I'll take the last part first, Tim, and then I'll open that up to Dr Ewart and the Health Minister. Uh, yeah, this is going to be uh, more of a phased um, loosening. We, we feel that we're not just going to be able to say, right, we're open tomorrow. It's going to be outdoor trade since the construction sector, we hope, on the 6th of April, and then the schools um, on, on the 12th. But if the data says we can't, we, we might have to do the schools in a staged approach, and that's something the uh, Minister for Education, and Sport and Culture can comment on. So it's not going to be a, a we're not going to come out of this quickly. Our colleagues, as I say, in the Channel Islands have been through this and they've taken our last outbreak. We only took three weeks and a couple of days. We know this is going to be longer now. That's why we've had to plan longer term, give people um, more detail on how that longer term is going to work and why we feel the need to help those people who are living on their own, who um, feel socially vulnerable and, and, and need support. So I don't know, David, if you want to add anything and then maybe Dr. Hughes. Yeah, I mean, you can, it's, it is obviously concerning that two weeks into a circuit breaker, we are still picking up um, cases of unknown origin. But what I would say, Tim, is they are going in the right direction. Um, the numbers that are coming from unknown source are slowly declining. If they were continuing to either rise or staying consistently static, then that would be of serious concern. But as well as seeing the overall number of cases come down, those that are coming from unknown source are slowly declining. So they're going in the right direction. But as the Chief Minister has already said in his statement today, this is why we urge people to follow the restrictions in place because they are there to bring that case number down further. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we can go about our phased approach to normality. But I'll bring the Director of Public Health in. Uh, yes, there's not really very much more for me to add there. I mean, one of the features about this outbreak with the associated sporadic community cases and how it differs from last summer's position is that we do know from the genomic sequencing that all the cases are related to this one cluster. Um, whereas back in the summer last year, the cases were from various different seeding episodes from you know, a variety of episodes bringing different um, viruses onto the island. So there's a difference in that respect, which um, potentially makes it easier to get to grips with. Um, and obviously, although we have the number that you quoted for the total incident cases of the ones that we can't link, the daily number is going down to very low numbers. And that's really the key metric that we need to be aware of. But we do need to be very clear that we've left, you know, sufficient time for the incubation period to have passed before we start releasing things for fear that there may be some other, you know, dormant cases out there that we haven't seen because they've been transmitting asymptomatically or what have you. Thank you. And second question sort of links in, I guess, but people are fearing, uh, oh, sorry, feeling a little bit lockdown weary, which is understandable. But we are getting reports that we're saying these restrictions are going to get us out of this lockdown. We're getting a lot more reports of there's loads of traffic still on the roads. People aren't wearing masks when they're out and about. People are visiting other households. Not as many people working from home. We've had the case you mentioned, a, a company uh, in this briefing, but we've had the prison as well. 
a meeting for socially distanced walk with friends, youngsters meeting at more than just Nobles Park. Uh, are you considering even tighter restrictions? Well, first and foremost, Tim, I, I get that people are fed up and tired of lockdown. I know I am. All my colleagues are. You know, it's been a year and our, our lives have not been an enjoyable experience for the last year. So nobody wants this. So I understand people are getting fed up with it. But if if people don't um, follow the rules, and that's what we've been trying time and time again to get that message over, that if you don't, where possible, stay at home and you do go out and you break the rules, you could well be passing it on and you could be extending this lockdown. So obviously, if people are caught breaking the rules, then the police will investigate and, and, and take action. But it really is in everyone's interest to, to, to get on, follow the rules, and ensure that we come out of this as quickly as possible. Because when people follow the rules, we get out of it quickly. We've seen what's happened before when everyone's followed the rules. We've come out far quicker than other jurisdictions, and we can do it again if everyone follows the rules. But, yeah, it's, it's a plea to, to everyone to please just think twice... Just going out to see a friend might seem harmless in your eyes, but you could be asymptomatic or they could be asymptomatic. And you're spreading a really infectious variant, the Kent variant, of COVID around and putting everyone at risk. I don't know, David, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I think there is lockdown weariness. And I'm, like, as the Chief Minister said, I'm personally not surprised a year in. I think we're all weary of even hearing the word COVID, to be perfectly blunt, Tim. Um, but... We do urge people to follow the rules. We don't want to have to have these rules in place. Nobody wants to have the... No government, I think, in the world wants to impose rules like this. Um, but we are doing so for a reason, and that is for the protection of our society and to actually mitigate this disease that, for some in our society, would still be catastrophic if they caught it. Um, if people do follow the rules, as the Chief Minister has said, we have proven it twice now that we can get through this and we can get through this in timescales that are actually quicker than other areas around the world. We managed last year to get through this in a phased approach um, to release back to normal and we had nearly, I think it was eight months of normality. Um, we can do so again um, if we follow the rules. But not considering a more draconian approach then? Well, I hope not to. It's not in our plans, Tim. Obviously, we had to stop the construction sector from working when we realised it had spread um, so far and we had to cancel our hub schools at the time because that was what the data was telling us that we sadly had to do. We sincerely and genuinely do not want to have to tighten any further the rules that people currently have to follow. We're trying to be as helpful as possible by allowing people living on their own to mix with one other household. But if people abuse it, don't follow the rules. All they're going to do is ensure that we stay in this lockdown for longer than necessary. And I'm sure we all want to get out of this and get our lives back to normal. Thanks very much, Thank Tim. you. Now bring in Simon Richardson from Business 365. Good afternoon, Simon. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. Before my questions, could I just seek a clarification from the Health Minister, please? Um, the 12-week gap between vaccinations one and two, uh, presumably this will not apply to people who've received their first jabs and have already been given a date with a 10-week gap for their second. Yes, we are honouring existing appointments, Simon. That's great, thank you. Um, my first question is for Mr Bailey, if I may, please. Um, clearly mental health has been a, there's been a difficult time for many people. Are you seeing more problems within any specific age groups? <clears throat> no, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting in terms of the referral numbers, but on the first lockdown we saw 
really counterintuitively, a real drop off in referrals. The referral numbers reduce dramatically, which, like I said, is, you'd think is kind of counterintuitive. Um, that really stabilised in the second, and, and, and this current lockdown, we're seeing a kind of similar normal um, um, referral numbers. I'm not aware of of any um, of any, any any significant shifts in terms of um, age range uh, profiles, um, but we know that the referral numbers at the moment uh, are relatively um, steady. So they've neither increased or, or, or decreased significantly as we saw in the first lockdown. But to answer your question explicitly, I'm not aware of any any, any shift in profiles. Thank you. My second question is for the Chief Minister. Um, it's a question from the Business 365 reader who has, who is a local uh, self-employed tradesman, which is probably more relevant now that the lockdown is set to continue longer. He's contacted us in respect of the MIRA support scheme. Uh, he's concerned that in its current form, it could work as a disincentive to self-employed people. Um, he says, if you're a tradesman of any discipline and have the opportunity to work safely within COVID protocols, for example, an emergency call out, then they should be allowed to do so on the basis that the income over and above the £230 MIRA payment would be taxed to offset the cost of MIRA to the taxpayer. He said it would also enable the person to then spend more on food, heating, takeaways, etc., putting more revenue back into the local economy. And he suggests a threshold of maybe 60% of a self-employed person's normal income should be permitted to be earned on top of MIRA. Well, thanks for that question. You, you've probably peaked too soon with that question, Simon, because I've got the Treasury Minister coming to give a briefing with us on Monday. Um, he, he's Him and his team are the people that will, you know, listen to this and, and feedback. So I'll pass on those comments to him, but he will be here to ask a number of your questions, answer a number of your questions regarding the support that we're giving and the increased support that we'll be giving to to businesses as we we extend the lockdown period. So one really for the Treasury Minister. Thank you. Thanks very much, Simon. And last but not least, we have Josh Stokes from ITV Granada. Good afternoon, Josh. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. Um, you've spoken today about restrictions hoping to be eased around the 6th of April, and you've said data, not dates in the past. So can you just outline precisely what data you're looking at to coincide with these dates to then ease these restrictions? And can you give some more detail on any precise targets that you feel need to be reached before any kind of these restrictions can be eased? Well, it's going to be the number of days with, with no unexplained cases. Because we have an open, well, not a, a totally open border, Josh, but because we are allowing people to go away for patient transfers, which obviously needs to happen, key workers such as people coming into the hospital to help out, um, doctors, specialists, consultants, etc., we have to accept that we are always going to see the odd case of COVID being declared on the island. So I'll just put down now that this is about the unexplained cases. So we need to get a number of days together of unexplained cases. And I'll bring in the Director of Public Health to um, give you the more detail on that. Thank you, Chief Minister. Yes, as you say, so long as any people are coming across the border, we will see cases coming in. And that's why we have the um, very strong border arrangements. Um, for testing and self-isolation, where somebody is a key worker, for example, a hospital consultant who's needed to do a clinic 
more or less immediately, there are very well-organized pathways to enable testing, but then to enable them to be in the workplace with very strong mitigations to reduce the risk of any onward spread absolutely down to the minimum, and should there be any, to detect it and contain it as quickly as possible. So those procedures have always been in, well, been in place for the best part of um, the last year. Um, and although obviously we have the added challenge of the Kent variant, which is more transmissible, as we know, than the previous variants, the approach to Kent is the same, but with more attention to making sure that we do apply the um, approaches consistently and strongly all the time, which is something that we have been able to do. And the result is that we haven't seen any breaches in just the same way as alongside the current outbreak, we're still seeing the occasional traveler coming in and testing positive, but they are being contained within the self-isolation testing arrangements without extra transmission, onwards transmission, and therefore adding to the outbreak. So those, those border containment procedures have served as well, and we expect them to continue to do so, so long as we can ensure that they're rigorously applied. Thank you. I think Dr. Ewart Josh was looking for uh, what we will need to see in place for us to hit these targets off the 6th, not wanting to put yeah. words in his mouth, or the 12th yeah. when we look to put our schools back. So how many days, et cetera, that's, I think of putting together the number of, of no cases of, I was trying to say, it's got to be in the community, not cases of COVID, but it's how many days of cases of not having COVID in our unexplained cases that we will need to get together to before we can hit these targets of releasing on the 6th and um, starting to open our schools up on the, on the 12th, I think. Is that right, Josh? Yeah, that's right, Chief Minister. Thank you. Ah, apologies, I obviously crossed a wire there. Um, yes, this brings us back to the incubation period of COVID, which is 14 days. So the minimum time one would want to leave between the last unexplained case and considering release would be 14 days. But we do know that with any variant, there is a tiny percentage that would go on to be positive beyond the 14 days. And with Kent, it looks like that percentage is likely to be a little bit higher, although we haven't got precise quantification for it yet. So that means that to give a bit of a margin, we would say probably 21 days um, clear of an unexplained, unexpected case. And that would be the, the sort of level at what we, which we'd be looking to think about the phasing of um, release from the, the restrictions. Thank you. Yeah, so just for clarification, um, um, Josh, it'll be 21 days for total lifting. Obviously, if we're 14 days without any cases, then the, the less riskier um, procedures yeah. such as um, outdoor trades, etc., can then open up. And that's why we're trying to stage, trying to stage this. Thanks very hey, much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, my second question, uh, obviously today is seen the announcement about Guernsey FC planning to make the journey over to the island in June. Given borders aren't currently due to be open for them, could we perhaps start to preempt plans for the air bridge to perhaps be rebuilt to coincide with this match at this time? Yeah, well, that's, that. an awful lot of the people from the Isle of Man went to Guernsey and I know from Guernsey residents came to the island and they had a really lovely time and were able to relax and 
feel as if they'd got away from COVID from the respective jurisdictions because we follow very similar pathways to our friends in Guernsey and, and therefore nothing would give me greater pleasure than if we're, we've come out of this, we've vaccinated similar percentages of people, which we are, that we can open the air bridge again with our friends in Guernsey. It's been very successful. I was at the first football match where I'm glad to say the Ireland won and um, let's hope if it goes ahead that the Ireland can maintain um, that record. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. And thank you very much for those questions. Now, as things stand, we will be back as normal to, for our regular media briefings on Monday. If we need to hold a briefing sooner, then of course we will. In the meantime, James Davis has recorded another session with questions directly from members of the public, focusing this time on vaccinations. Just this morning, he put your questions to Catherine Magson, the Chief Executive of the Department of Health and Social Care, and to our Director of Public Health, and we will broadcast this tomorrow at 5pm. In the meantime, please do the right thing for your island. This weekend, please stay at home as much as you possibly can. Every time you step out, you increase the risk to yourself and your community, and the next few days will be critical. If you do go out, please wear a face covering. If you do go out to exercise, and we have heard how important this is, please consider carefully whether what you are doing might impact on our emergency services. They are already working under real pressure. Each time they deploy, this puts additional strain on them and potentially exposes them to the virus. Please think of them. Exercise locally and exercise safely. And please, if you show any symptoms at all, do not brush it off. Stay at home and call 111. Please continue to make the right decisions for you, your family and our island. Have a great weekend. Thank you all very much.